Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back. Actually, it is good to be back, Josh. Uh, <laughs> you were, for, you for, weren't here last week. I was not here last week. And for those who are unaware, I bailed on Josh uh, last Wednesday. I was sick. I left him here to fend for himself for an hour plus talking and just scratchy voice in the whole thing. So um, it's good to be back. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're going to update you a little bit on what's happening in the real estate world, if you will. Uh, then we're going to get into some questions from you guys and, you know, kind of carry, carry us out through, through the end of the year. So Josh, big news today, if you will, existing home sales, uh, came in once again, down for the 10th month in a row sales are down what 35% or so year over year. So a big drop in the number, um, of properties actually closing escrow. Um, and, and as we, we all know, it has a lot to do with affordability, uh, a lot to do with interest rates. And, and speaking of rates, we've seen interest rates come off of those three-month lows. Uh, we saw, you know, you and I were talking last week towards the end of the week, and, and we, you know, people were getting loans again in the fives um, on, on some products out there. I don't know where we are at the moment. I'll have you update us here in just a second, but we've, we've seen REITs trend up a little bit. We've seen the 10-year trend up a little bit. So is it is it normal? Um, I guess is is one of the questions I'll ask, right? I mean, one thing that I read and and watch is that there's there's less there's less traders in the market right now, right? A lot of people have um, taken off for the holidays, right? Uh, a lot of the the interest rate traders, the bond traders, these guys are already on vacation, uh, so the impact in the moves is greater because there's less people actually making these trades one way, you know, one direction or the other. So a smaller number can influence the direction that we go. So do you feel like that's part of it? And are we waiting on CPI data kind of like we were last month? What are your yeah. thoughts on rates, Josh? Yeah, pretty much. That's exactly what we're looking at. So let's let's look at the slide here. You covered the existing home sales. But this little green band here, this is what we were expecting through the end of the year is that that's the, the 10 from like 3.4 to 3.62. And then you'll notice we are not between those pretty two green bars. Um, yesterday, the Bank of Japan surprised everyone. They artificially suppressed. They put a limit on their... Uh, treasuries and they doubled it. They allowed them to go from 0.25% to 0.5%. Uh, caught everyone off guard and it kind of pushed us up out of this range. Really, if we took that top green bar, we could just push it higher. It just widened the range that we're in. Now, within that range, weird stuff can happen for the exact reasons that you were talking about, Jeb. Most of the big major traders are vacationing they've closed out their big positions are so you talking about are, me? i'm still trading yeah, bro. exactly exactly I'm but still here. there there are traders there that will use this time knowing that if you want to want to make some money you can push the market around a lot easier uh than when it's more liquid and there are more traders buying and selling uh so with that uh you get big swings between the bid and the ask prices uh it takes us you know usually by nine o'clock in the morning pacific time 
the trading is settled out and you kind of see where it's where it's going to look at for the day and and we still haven't even got liquid uh, by that time most mornings here so uh it's hard to draw any conclusions i, I would say fairly safely that uh, all eyes are on the beginning of of next month what is it the 10th 12th 13th something like that that we're looking at for for cpi data we do get pce on friday pce should confirm the cp the cpi is is actually a secondary measure for the fed the fed prefers pce they think it's a better measure of inflation the problem with it is when inflation really got out of hand in june it was the cpi report that led pce so now everyone's kind of trading cpi thinking pce will fall in line with that and that's likely to be the case so we could see some improvement on on friday with a a low pce reading but we're still going to be in between those green bands it's all just noise until we get into next year and everyone gets back at their desks and decides where interest rates are going to go from here no, absolutely. And one thing I didn't miss, mention earlier with the existing home sales report that came out is, as many of you guys know, we, you know, not only do we have less sales, we, we saw inventory um, come up considerably over, you know, the last couple of months. But recently, um, we've actually seen those numbers retreat a little bit, even though we're sitting at what 3.3 months of inventory nationwide, we're now starting to see those numbers dwindle a little, a little bit. And it has to do with seasonality, it has to do with the time of year here locally, you know, we update it every week, we're, we're looking at 2706 properties here in Orange County. Um, just for reference, we started the year just under a thousand, which was incredibly low. Uh, we saw it go over 4,000 at the height of the market. And, and typically this time of year, we're sitting, you know, four or 5,000 homes on the market this time of year. Today, we're sitting at 2,706 properties. So inventory is still very, very low, um, especially historically speaking. Uh, and, and I, you know, don't be surprised, you know, when we come back next week for our final show of the year and, and you hear those numbers under 2,500, um, you're likely to continue to see them dwindle. And that inventory is going to, to, to stay low for the first couple of weeks of January. And then it'll start to pick up again, um, as we head into that spring market, um, here in Huntington beach, we're sitting at 185, uh, Huntington. I, I don't remember exactly where we started the year. I think it was like 60 or 70 properties on the market. We saw it as high as 275-ish, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and today we're sitting at 185. So we're going to see those numbers probably dwindle a little bit further as well. It's it's the market. It's sellers taking their homes off uh, just because they're not getting the action, just because they're going to reset, probably come back in the spring. Um, some of them are people just trying to see if they could have gotten their price. They didn't, or they're not. And therefore, um, you know, the numbers are, are going to reflect that. I mean, I don't remember if you guys, you know, just a little side note here, uh, a couple months back, I said, you know, what's, what's really deceiving about the market that we're in is that when you see properties listed, for example, um, you know, I mentioned my neighbor's house was listed at 1.2 million. And, and if you guys remember, I said, Hey, listen, that, that, that house is a hundred thousand overpriced. And so when that property sells, it's going to sell for 1.1 ish. Um, and it's going to show that they sold for a hundred thousand dollars less than the asking price. And on paper, that's going to look really bad because it's going to look like crap. They had to take a bath in order to sell that property. But if you remember me mentioning it, that property wasn't a $1.2 million property back in May at the top of the market. It, it wasn't. But for whatever reason, they thought, hey, let's list it $100,000 higher than it should be in an environment where 
things are pulling back or the market's changing, let's just throw it out there at some crazy number. Well, guess what, guys? It closed last week and it closed at a million seventy-five. So I was twenty-five thousand dollars off on what I thought it would sell for. But again, the reason I bring this up is not to say uh, you know every house out there is is um, overpriced and that's the reason it, it's selling for less. But there are a lot of them where they're just overpriced to start with. And that's the reason you're seeing these properties sit on the market a little bit longer things selling for, you know, a reduced price versus where it was listed sellers having to do things. It it's the market for one. Yes. But it's also, you know, uh, agents, it's also sellers doing things, you know, incorrectly to start with not incorrectly, but not putting the property in the best position to sell at the max price at that time. So just thought I would update that. Josh. Jeb, what, what I want to know is, um, does your neighbor watch the show and are you guys still friends? Do they blame you for talking down the value of their home? Is it, is it your fault? Uh, probably everything's my fault, Josh. Uh, no, okay. uh, my, my neighbor's older. Um, and, uh, they had a so long standing relationship. He doesn't YouTube. She, 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 she doesn't YouTube. She might, she might, she might watch us on YouTube. Um, and, and finally got wind of where we thought the price was. And that's why she accepted something long. You just never know. Perfect. Uh, but Josh, let's let's talk about something we well, haven't really. Jeb, Jeb before yeah. we jump to that, let me let me piggyback on some of this existing home sales data here. There's some things that we're seeing that are bearing out um, the hypothesis that you and I had earlier in the year. We have lots of people who are screaming, "Housing market's crashing! Housing market's <laughs> going to drop 20 percent," and that is possible. But going back to what you said, affordability is going to be the driver of that. The big thing that has impacted affordability is rates doubling in the last year. So what we saw over the last five weeks is that purchase applications increased. They were flat week over week and rates were flat week over week. Figure that one out. Um, But as rates came down, the payment on a a median priced home dropped $200 a month over that time frame. Applications increased. So... There is a baseline of people in the market who want to buy, but the home has to be affordable to them and interest rates will determine the the, the direction of that. But the important thing for anyone who wants to be in the market or is an owner and thinking of selling or would like to sell, would like to move up, move laterally, move down, whatever you want to do, the thing that we have to look at here is this is not the last market. Most of the people that are calling for a crash are not in this business. They don't make they're living in this business. They want to make YouTube videos. They want to get headlines. The news media wants to get headlines. Analysts want to get attention for themselves. Affordability is what's going to dictate where we go from here. If interest rates come down and normalize, we should have a floor underneath home prices. If interest rates continue going up, home prices will suffer. And these numbers are are telling us that because what is happening We don't have a supply demand imbalance because while affordability is making demand decrease, those sellers would be also buyers in the market and they're choosing not to sell. So we have a balance between supply and demand that is supportive of prices. Now, it doesn't make them bulletproof. Does it mean they can't come down? Absolutely not. But interest rates and how that bears out on affordability will be what drives things. If you've watched us here, you know that I believe that interest rates are going to move lower next year, nowhere near where we were to start the year, but better than where we were a month or two ago. And when a payment is three, four, five hundred dollars lower per month, that opens up the pool of willing and able demand 
for those properties. Now, conversely, what it's also going to do, it will bring out some more supply because some of those sellers who are not selling because they don't like what the payment looks like will come and sell as well. But those those are the two big things that we're going to be looking at. No, for sure. And, and, and let's, let's talk about something else. I mean, I know a lot of people have done videos on, on uh, the loan limit changes, but let's just kind of go over that real quick because it can be difficult to understand. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because this can potentially help some people that were kind of in that threshold, get uh, the, you know, a little bit more purchasing power, if you will. Um, it's going to help areas like Riverside, San Diego, San Bernardino, some of these areas where they had lower loan loan limits, if you will, qualify for a little bit more property. And because prices have gone up, um, the fact that, you know, uh, the, the, the loan limits have been um, moved upward is going to essentially help people. So Josh, I know you have a couple slides here you want to add to this. So let's, um, let's add it in there and then we'll start answering some questions. Yep. So simple question here for most areas of the United States, $726,200 is the loan limit that allows you to do any and all uh, mortgages through Fannie and Freddie with one unit. Now you'll also notice if you go two, three, four units, very few loans are done on duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes relative to the volume of single family and condos. Um, but those go much higher, up to 1.4 million uh, almost uh, on a fourplex. And, and, and Josh, one thing I want to touch on when you say that, you'd be surprised how many people don't know what units are. And I'm not digging on on that, but it's a question that comes up often in videos when I talk about units. A unit is essentially a door, a front door to a property, right? Occasionally, it might be a building that has four units in it, four front doors, four people live in that particular building. That would be a four unit property. Occasionally, it can be four little properties on one parcel of land, right? I mean, that would be considered a, a, a four unit deal. Um, and so, conventional financing, FHA, VA, all these ones that, that Josh are going to talk about allow you to finance up to four units um, that's considered residential property and, and the loan limits go up with that. So that's essentially what we're going over. So. so for simplicity's sake, let's ignore Alaska, Guam, Hawaii, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Very few of you are, are there. Um, in essence, what they get is they get high balance loans. So high balance uh, is 150% of the standard balance loan limit. So it puts us at $1,089,300 for one units, all the way up to $2,095,000 for four units. Those are pretty, pretty darn big loans. So looking at it, what areas in the United States qualify for for those high balance loans. Anything in gray, you do not qualify. You are not eligible for high balance loans. These other areas here, um, the dark uh, the dark orange ones there are the full, full boat, 150%. Um, and then the rest of them are lesser amounts. So you don't necessarily get the full high balance. Like San Diego is one that is, is puzzling to me. We've talked about it here that San Diego has kind of come into parity with Orange and LA County. I don't know that to me, there's really any discount for living down there, but their loan limits, they don't get the full million 89. They have a, a slightly lower okay. amount. And Josh, something I want to mention, when, when when the government raises the loan limits, when when Fannie and Freddie raised, FHFA raises the, the, the loan limits, that doesn't put um, the economy, doesn't put the mortgage world at any more risk of default than it was prior to. People hear that and they go, oh, we're headed for 2008 again. They're they're allowing people to now get a million dollar loan back. The, the government's helping millionaires buy homes. Yeah, that, that's not the case at all. They've been doing this. They've been raising these loan limits for better part of 20 years. Some years it doesn't go up um, just because prices 
you know, the median home price doesn't necessarily go up year over year, but this does not change anything. It just helps more people get qualifications in areas like California, where it's very, very expensive to buy a house. So with that, you talk about California where it's very expensive. Basically, if you look at this map, those are areas that are very expensive. So which states have them available? California, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, Tennessee, Florida, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and New Hampshire. But if we go back and look at that map, what do we got? We got Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, we've got... Uh, King County, basically Seattle, Bellevue, Washington. We've got the Bay Area. You've got New York and New Jersey, the big financial centers. You've got Maryland and Virginia around Washington, D.C. Again, super high home prices. The key is down in Florida. And some of these pockets here in Tennessee have increased in value. So it's expensive, high cost areas, high cost of living areas for the most part. So if you're in one of those areas and you're buying there, you may have access to a high balance loan. So I wanted to throw this one up here, Jeb. I thought this was in, in Interesting, And it's also helpful to understand this is not political. doesn't matter who's in the White House. The FHFA looks at their index year over year and they say, here's the new limits. It's a calculation. No person is in control. And what, when you look at this, this chart here shows you from 2006 to 2017, we had no increase. It was $417,000 was the, the maximum standard Fannie Freddie limit. And then now you've seen as home prices have increased, it's gone up rather rapidly. And I would expect that next year, you know, I would say with 90% confidence that home prices per the FHFA index will be somewhere between minus five and plus 5% next year. Mm -hmm. And if it drops 5%, then we're not going to have any increase. We're not going to talk about a 2024 increase. If it goes up 3%, 5%, we're going to be talking about a little tiny little increase uh, over year over year. So we'll see. We're going to see how that plays out. So want to talk about FHA loans. Jeb, you just did a video that's getting a ton of interest on everything you need to know for FHA for 2023. FHA does this a little bit differently. They have floor and high cost ceiling, and then they have tons of counties. Most counties are at neither. They're not at the floor. They're not at the limit. They're somewhere in between. So you have to go out, Google it, look up your county or the county that you're interested in buying. The floor, the lowest limit FHA would have is 472.030. You can get all the way up to a high cost uh, area and they have the same limits as Fannie and Freddie do at a million eighty nine. And it's also there indexed for units. So we've got some fun ones here. We've got a trick question. What is the maximum VA loan amount for 2023? It's a trick question because there is no maximum. Lenders will put a maximum on it, but VA says we will ensure any loan amount zero down for any veteran that qualifies. So in the real world, two, two and a half million with zero down is probably the best we're going to see. A lot of lenders put a, a ceiling on that at about 1.5 million, but it is not a VA imposed limit. Last trick question is what is the maximum USDA loan amount for 2023? USDA doesn't publish maximum limits because there is no maximum limit. What they do have, you have to be 115% of the area median income is your income limit and you have to meet their debt to income guidelines. So is there a practical ceiling every year in terms of what that maximum loan amount is? Yes, but it's not one that they publish. It's one that they back into with having a USDA eligible property, meeting the income limits and meeting their debt to income requirements. Good stuff. So hopefully you guys found some value in that. I know there's a lot of videos out there on it. Um, a lot of them don't really go into the detail of what it all means. So hopefully um, that answers some of your questions. But if you have additional ones, just put them in the chat below. Um, for those of you who are listening on the podcast, 
Uh, we do this every Wednesday. We answer questions live. Um, and for those of you watching live, we actually do this on the podcast on Friday. We take this show, we transcribe the audio, and uh, it's 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 live online, so you can listen to it versus having to watch Josh and I's face uh, every single week. Uh, but in addition to that, we talk about you know topics to educate you as a home buyer. Uh, the Educated Home Buyer is the podcast. This week, we're actually talking about the process of writing an offer. So we just kind of went through a series of, you know, especially if you're starting the year and your goal in 2023 is to buy a house, we're kind of taking you through that journey, if you will. So we've talked about everything of getting a mortgage, uh, you know, going through the pre-approval process. Now you've got a mortgage, you know, finding a real estate agent, writing an offer. So that's kind of where we're at, you know, at the moment is we're writing that offer, what goes into that offer. So the next two weeks are going to be talking about that. And then we're going to be talking about what the process looks like once you're in escrow. What what happens? Like, you know, what happens with the inspection, with the appraisal? What happens with the loan? Who, you know, what documents and timeframes and all of that stuff. So if you're not listening to it, do it. Listen to it. Be cool. That's what the cool Jeff, people are doing. And the cool Jeff, people share it with their friends. Don't forget the important part. You talked about you can listen to it if you don't want to see our faces. But if you don't want to hear our voices, we post a transcription also. And you can read it in whatever voice Ooh. you want and imagine the face of whatever person that you would like to hear reading that to you. That's genius, actually, Josh. Yeah. Um, that would work well. You know, on our dating site, we could have one of the people read to the other person, you know, kind of you I know, like it. just bedtime stories. Read it, read our info. It'd be great. This is good stuff. So guys, there's not really a lot of questions in here. And I know you guys uh, don't enjoy Josh and I that much. So uh, we'll start answering some questions here. But if you're listening to the podcast, I'd love to know. What, let's start off this. Have you listened to the podcast? Yes or no? And if so, do you like it or does it suck? Um, is it repetitive? Is it information you've heard before? Are you finding any value in it? Those are things that I would I would love to hear. And if there's something that we're not covering that we could cover, would also like to know that right after you hit the like button. That would be nice as well. So Josh, there's a couple questions to start. Um, this one's a pretty easy one. Uh, Dr. Clark says she closed back in May on new construction builder, sold the loan, which was expected. However, that mortgage company said it's sold it also in November to Carrington Mortgage. So is that normal? So Josh, what happens when a lender sells a mortgage? Is, is it normal for that to take place? And does anything change in, in terms of the buyer and their monthly payment, their loan, all that good stuff? Yeah. So depending on the type of loan, some loans are more likely to get sold than others. There are certain times when loans are more likely to get sold than others. The only thing that is out of the norm for this is servicing rights have not been especially valuable this year. We talk about it on the show with rates up, lenders and buyers of servicing rights, buyers of closed loans, of mortgage bonds, do not believe that these loans are going to stay on the books for the five to seven years that is typical. They think rates are going to recede. They think that these loans are going to get paid off. So there hasn't been as much of transferring of servicing rights because the servicing rights have not been valued very highly because everyone's worried these loans are going to pay off. Um, when you get uh, a different type of market, this can be super common. I've heard of people having their loan sold three, four times in a year. It can be highly annoying because you have to go set up a new login, set up your auto payment, whatever you like and, and how you handle everything. And you got to remember, well, great. Who is it now? Who is it this month? Um, so it's not fun, not cool, but uh, it's not uncommon. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to control it. The, the, 
ownership of the right, uh, the ownership rights of your mortgage are assignable. They are transferable and it can be sold as many times as the owner of the loan wants to do that. Good stuff. Um, Jessica has some comments as well as a question here. Uh, Jessica saying, typically, when in the year is there the most inventory? What month? So what's going to happen is you're going to start to see more inventory come to the market after the first of the year. doesn't happen immediately, but it starts to trickle in. Um, and, and so... The, the spring market for most markets that that the good market, if you will, when it's it's good for sellers, you start to see more inventory as buyers, you know, things start to pick up starts a, right after the Super Bowl, right? First weekend of February, but it doesn't really peak in uh, probably until late April ish, maybe May sometime in May is, is is usually when the market is kind of at its full force. That's, you know, just shortly after that's when you're going to see the most inventory on the market sometime during the summer, um, right before uh, the kids start to head back to school in those markets, at which point it kind of starts to turn. Um, so I would say mid-June, mid-July is probably when you see the most inventory on the market. The summer gets the credit for for the good times, if you will, right? So everybody's like, the summer is the best time to, to buy or sell a house. Well, that's when most properties close. They close in the summer. But if you if you understand how real estate works, that means those properties went into escrow 30, 60, potentially 90 days before that. So if something's closing in, say, May, this year the peak, if you will, was in May, that means properties, those properties were in escrow in April, March, potentially, some even in February. Uh, so that is going to be the season that the, the spring is going to be a really telling time for 2023, in my opinion. It's going to set the bar um, for the rest of the year. Now, I will go out on a limb here and say that uh, 2023 is going to look a lot like the second half of 2022. Uh, you're, you know, you're going to see numbers continue to be down year over year, especially through through May. Right? I mean, May was the height of the market. So when they compare May of 2023 to May of 2022, it's going to look awful. Um, it really it is, and I'm telling you that five months in advance. <clears throat> just because the, the the likelihood of interest rates coming down to something that is going to boost the market isn't isn't uh, isn't very high. Uh, so, with that being said, you know whatever happens in the first probably I would say forty five days in from forty five days in until about the end of May, I think kind of sets the bar for for the rest of the year with regards to rates, with regards to home sales, with regards to basically everything housing. Josh, what are your thoughts on that? Just in terms of where the market's going next year, or in terms of her question of, of inventory? Uh, no, no. In terms of what I'm saying about uh, that being kind of a telltale sign, the first half of the year is going to kind of dictate the full year, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And that you don't have and, to agree then, to it. I don't know. I don't disagree. I'm just saying what happens with interest rates will have a large impact in it. And here's the fun part or the not so fun part. What would lead interest rates to improve a lot next year? It would mean the economy is really suffering. Real estate doesn't generally do spectacularly well when, when the economy is suffering. So will it increase affordability where there'll be some people who can step in and benefit from it? Yeah, but a lot of people, if that's the case, are not going to be as comfortable. So it's sort of as comfortable buying a home or making a big investment in that type of environment. So I think it's likely that we muddle through. There's sort of like a Goldilocks scenario here where 
the economy struggles enough that rates inflation gets under control and rates improve, but not too much where people are pessimistic about the future that, you know, I'm not a big believer that we have a lot of hope for a soft landing, but it also doesn't have to be just a horrific crash for the economy either. So the shorter and shallower that any recession is, and the the quicker we can recover from that without getting inflation uh, hot again will be the driver of it. So uh, definitely, you, you're right that that will look a, a lot like where we are. And I would say kind of more like the fourth quarter. I would say the last three months as rates have started dropping is has been more active than the end of summer into the early part of the fall when rates were really high and people were looking at these payments going, holy goodness, what am I going to do with that? So next year is going to be interesting. It's going to bear repeating that volume is going to be down. And, you know, for people who are used to the last two, three, four years of being professionals, in the industry and transactions just falling out of the sky or for sellers used to just putting in a sign in the yard and, and it's easy to get your price. It's not going to be that kind of a market. It is going to be more of a muddle through more of the same. And I think when we have this conversation next year, we'll have a much better look into what the future looks like for interest rates and real estate. Good stuff. Uh, and Sherry, don't worry about Nightbot. Nightbot. Night, Nightbot lost its mind. I didn't even <laughs> see any caps. Nightbot is, is, uh, is picking on you. And that's, you know, we, we don't uh, we don't condone that here. But no, it's, it's automated. It's all AI type. Uh, driven information that kind of helps regulate the chat. So don't sweat it. It's nothing. You're not, nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, Jessica goes on to say the podcast has been great. I've really, I've never really seen anyone go through the process of explaining escrow. So that's been helpful. Looking forward to the rest of the series, hopefully buying in 2023. So something I want to say about Jessica, she always shares my information on social media, on Instagram and uh, gives shout out. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you and and the support. So it's been awesome. Thank you. Um, Rick, yeah, do you want to? Dina says that we need to get a nightbot for nightbot. That we could do that. So, a, a double AI nightbot, to, an AI to put the AI in, in nightbot squared. Um, Rick, Rick says uh, he's in the market for a nine hundred thousand dollars single family home as a primary residence. Has a five percent down payment, um, two percent debt to income ratio. So considerably low there. Uh, gross uh, 175 per year in income. Would that qualify for a conforming loan? So Josh, we've got, we don't know credit score, but we know 5% down will qualify for conforming loan. Uh, the 900,000, I guess that the question is, where are you located, right? Is that, yeah. uh, is that a fair yeah. question? <laughs> no, it, it is because 5% down wouldn't get you down. I'm assuming that Rick w was watching here from the beginning, like an astute observer and, mm -hmm. and knows what the county limits are and knows that he has access to a high balance loan. Um, and note, another thing kind of tips us off the 5% down under the standard balance limits, you are able to do 3% down. Once you get the high balance, you have to come up with the 5% down like Rick's talking about here. Yeah, so in theory, Rick would qualify for a conforming loan, assuming everything else meets the guidelines there. So, so look at it: one hundred seventy-five thousand. It's just shy of one hundred eighty thousand. It's fifteen thousand dollars a month. Um, best case scenario, you can go as high as a fifty percent debt to income ratio. It's a seventy-five hundred dollar payment. He's saying he has a two percent debt to income ratio, which is you know a couple hundred dollars a month debt or or less. So with that, I'm assuming also a good credit 
uh, score likely to be able to go to a 50 debt to income, if not a 45 debt to income. And even with current interest rates, you're looking at the payment well below uh, where your limits are. So yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, you know, a no brainer where it's a, you know, 25% total debt to income ratio, but you should be able to qualify with a conforming loan. And again, depending on where you're at, I don't know where you are, but here in Southern California, all of the Southern California counties, we have access to a program that follows Fannie Freddie guidelines, but they set their own rates and terms and they don't have some of the high balance hits. So if you're if you're local here, um, let me know because we have a program that will definitely be a, a much lower interest rate than what you would look at with a standard high balance loan. Yeah. And on and on top of that, I mean, if, if you're if you're looking for um, really a, a lender, mortgage professional anywhere in the United States, a lot of people have reached out. Um, in fact, 19 of you closed transactions with a, a real estate agent that I referred to you last year, 19 people um, in 2023 closed with a real estate agent. And I don't know, 20 to over 2000 people used the referral link last year and got connected with a mortgage professional. So if you need to get connected to somebody, um, real estate agent, mortgage professional, anywhere in the U S use that link that's scrolling the bottom there. Um, and if you're listening on the podcast, there's a separate link that you can go to in the description of that video. Uh, but that'll get you connected, honestly. And, and there's a lot of positive feedback, guys. So um, the only negative feedback comes from the people that don't qualify. They get mad. Uh, but the people that actually qualify are are happy. So, And they're in good hands, which is an important piece. Chris says, why the beard, Jeb? It's laziness, cold. Laziness, it's cold. cold. Change the things. You know, just my wife likes it. A little bit of everything. It was it was a little crazy. Um, this week, I, I kind of took, you know, trimmers, made it look a little bit more groomed uh, but then i re instantly regretted it when i was done that i did that uh so now we're back in full growth mode and uh you know here in in california for those of you who don't know it's i mean i know there's a cold front going across the nation at the moment um my my family i talked to him today in north carolina but, you know it's gonna be the, the high tonight i think it's like 14 degrees or something it's not supposed to get above freezing for the next couple of days California is, is like really, I mean, we're following suit right behind you guys. It's going to be like 75, I think, on on Christmas. I don't know what we're going to do, Josh. I mean, I don't know if I have any more short sleeve, sleeve shirts that are clean. I'm probably going to have to do laundry this week. because It, it sounds it, like 18 holes on Christmas, Jeb. It sounds brutal. The weather is frightful out there. Um, but, you know. It's okay. Like somebody has to be here and take care of it. And I, I guess I'll do it. I guess I'll just stay. Yeah, but I'm going to be in Rancho Mirage and it's going to be 80. So we're, gonna, we're probably going to have to go to the pool. Oof. <laughs> How do you do it? Um, probably be an earthquake now that I said that. Uh, <laughs> Fire tornado. Yeah, just like something will, something will happen. Uh, G Stack says, are assumed mortgages possible for a second property? So this is one of those questions that's difficult to answer because when people say second property, I don't know if they're talking about a second home, like they keep their primary, they buy a second home, or if they're talking about, hey, listen, getting rid of my property and buying a, another home, a new home, or if they're talking about keeping their existing home and buying a new home as their primary home. So Josh, when you hear assumed mortgages um, right after Chris Stapleton plays on your phone, um, how <laughs> does I that- Because I can't remember this without do not disturb before How we start. does that work? Do, do Are assumed mortgages available on- all types of properties or is it just primary homes let's let's talk about it. uh it's a really good question and to say with certainty i would have to do some research but 
lender's discretion. And what do we talked about? The, the two types of loans that are most assumable, VA loans are assumable, FHA loans are assumable. If you go and get a VA or an FHA loan, those are only owner occupied. I would be thinking that they are likely to have a requirement of owner occupancy. So if you're saying a second home, I'm going to leave this home that I own and buy this one to live in as my residence, probably. Um, but I certainly wouldn't bet my life on it. We'll, we'll do some research here and uh, report back to you next show. Good stuff. Um, Sherry Berry. Sherry Berry says, how to select a realtor. I would like a realtor that is knowledgeable in the neighborhood that I'm interested in buying. Haven't been able to find a realtor that meets that criteria. Um, so here's the thing. Do you need an agent? I mean, if you want an agent that is that is super local to your neighborhood, then so be it. Um, is that necessary? I'm going to say no. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> you need somebody that is familiar with your your market, if you will. But typically speaking, you don't need an expert in that neighborhood in order to find a good agent that understands the market and can guide you and what have you. So, um, but you want to look for people, you know, that that obviously are good communicators, people that are been in the business for a period of time, people that have been through more than one market, um, you know, not crapping on new agents, but, you know, you want somebody that's been through a market where, you know, People have had to reduce prices. You've been able to negotiate. You you know, there's a different a different skill set in in real estate agents that have been around for 15, 10, 20 years, whatever, versus those that have only been around for two. Even if they've watched every video on YouTube and whatever, experience starts to play into that. Um, you know, the more negotiation, more deals that people do, the better they get at their job. Uh, so find somebody that's like that. Um, and there's not really a surefire way to do it. Check reviews, ask to speak to, to, you know, people that have, they've done business with. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I network with agents all across the country, all 50 States. Um, sometimes I don't have an agent just because there's not an agent in that location. Uh, but there's a reason that I travel a couple times a year to some of these seminars that I go to. It's because I have relationships there with different agents and I continuing, you know, continuing to, uh, develop those relationships and, and you know, try to refer people that have done a good job and know what they're doing. And again, that's why 19 people closed last year through me referring them out. So if you need somebody, reach out and doing that. Uh, but we actually talk a little bit about it on the podcast as well. So if you want some information on on picking a mortgage professional, picking an agent, you can go check it out on there. Well, Jeb, I was going to say, we did do an episode on how to shop <laughs> for a lender. We did not do an episode for how to shop for a realtor. So, so maybe that's we, the episode. We, we probably need to add that to the list. And again, any anything that you guys have that you want to hear, um, that you would he want to hear us go in greater depth than we can do here in a three, yeah. four, five minute answer to a question, just let us know. We're happy to record an episode. Yeah, and, and on, on that is there other people outside of Josh and I that you want to hear from, right? Um, Ryan, uh, 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 what's his name? I almost said. Pineda? Uh, no, not Ryan, Ryan Pineda. <laughs> what, what's the dude's name on uh, Ryan Sirhan? Sir, Sir, what's his name? Sir Hant. Sir Hant. Yeah, that guy. Uh, he hasn't gotten back to us probably because I don't know his name. <laughs> probably uh, because I don't, don't watch a lot. Of, I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't watch a lot of reality TV when it comes to real estate. So uh, some of these people I'm not I'm not familiar with. But yeah, he hasn't called us. So who else do you want to hear from? Ah, uh, boy, he's never going to call now. 
Um, Clara, Clara says, I don't have two years of consistent work experience, but I want to purchase land and build a house on it and sell it for a return on investment. How do I go about doing that? Hard money question mark. So Josh, how difficult is it for someone to buy land and build a house um, when their work experience isn't there, if you will? It's really hard. Um, Unless you have depending cash. depending on how how sporadic that work history is, a gap of employment um, is acceptable. We need to explain it with an FHA loan. We need to be back on the job for six months with a conventional loan. We don't have that six month requirement, but it has to make sense, and we have to be able to paint the picture to a lender that you are a good credit risk. In this context, none of those are construction loans. So a gap of employment is going to ratchet up the difficulty in qualifying for a construction loan. The important thing to remember with hard money, the hard money lender relies heavily on your equity position in the property. So if you own some a chunk of land that was valuable and free and clear and you want to build a house on it, well, there's equity in the land, in the dirt that you own. Um, otherwise, you need to come in with a fairly large down payment. I would step back and say, I just question the premise that it's going to be easy to step in and buy a piece of land and build a property and then sell it and make money. We uh, had started off the show tonight, Jeb, with existing home sales reports. We had uh, new home sales yesterday and builders are more pessimistic than they have been since 2006. They're much more optimistic than 2006, 2007, but the most pessimistic they have been since that time. So if builders who have billions of dollars and do this professionally at scale are concerned and pessimistic about doing that at a profit. If you haven't done this regularly or have a background in the trades, I would question that it's going to be a super easy way for you to make some money in this market. Agreed. Yeah. And, and that's not just crap. I mean, that's not crapping on your idea. It's just something you need to to add to your to your thought process when when you're going through it. Doesn't mean it can't be done. Just means, you know, when 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 the pros aren't doing it, you know, maybe, maybe it's it's time to step back and, and reconsider. So we saw another headline this week, Jeb, um, flippers, uh, profit of flipped homes is at the lowest level in like 10 or 12 years. And again, some of those people are, are newbies stepping in and flipping their first home. A lot of those people do it professionally and their margins are at the lowest levels they've been in a long time. Well, that and, and tradespeople. I mean, contractors, I mean, here in Southern California, contractors are still busy. Builders are still, you know, they're, these guys, all, electricians, plumbers, whatever, they're still all busy and they're, they're charging a premium. So until the market slows enough where those premiums come down, the cost of building is going to be, you know, the expense is going to be still at that that higher end. Um, and it just makes it more difficult to do. So, you know, not telling you you can't do it, just saying, I, you know, something to, to definitely consider um, before taking the plunge. Charmaine owns a home in Fontana with her sister looking to downsize, would it make more sense to sell than buy in the spring of 2023? Not necessarily, maybe. I mean, obviously this is a difficult question to answer without all the context. What I would say is you're local, reach out to me. We can have a conversation off air. I mean, I, had, I talked to somebody recently um, from a couple of weeks ago and we discussed their situation and uh, it couldn't, it can make sense, but it's not just a, you know, a black and white answer where um, there's not things to consider kind of in between, if you will. So Let's let's chat yeah. and, and see if we can guide you. Yeah. Let me let me ask you a question about this. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we all do this. We're not really realizing that it's going to be January one in about five minutes. This mm -hmm. weekend it's going to be Christmas. Following weekend it's going to be New Year's Eve, and then it is January. Saying mm -hmm. would it make more sense to sell and then buy in the spring of twenty twenty three? 
spring of 2023 is like 90 days away. Mm -hmm. So if your home was ready to put a for sale sign in the yard today and it took two, three weeks to put it under contract, 30 days to close, we're almost to spring right there. So we're not even talking, there's not a lot of time to do it if you wanted to do it and thought that was the best timing. We all have this perception of time that there's so much available. Well, selling a home isn't something that happens overnight. Maybe it did two years ago, but in the current market, there takes a little uh, time, effort and planning. So if, if you wanted to accomplish that versus pushing it off further in the future, you need to have that conversation with Jeb or a real estate pro, uh, another real estate pro earlier rather than later. Yeah, no, I mean, well said, Josh. I mean, it's it's one of those things that what are you trying to accomplish, I guess, is is probably the biggest question I would ask you. So if you're going to call me, let's I mean, that's what I'm going to start with. What are you trying to accomplish by selling now and buying something in the spring? Is it the idea that you're going to get more money for the property now and you're going to be able to buy something less expensive in the spring? Or are you planning to buy something in the spring anyway and you want to have the money readily available so that when the right property comes up, you can buy it? So now is what you're thinking. So that's kind of where my my, my head is going. But reach out and we can we can have that conversation in a little bit more detail. Uh, Edgar says, as a first time home buyer, personally, what would you do as far as becoming a homeowner? My area is skyrocketing, but prices are lowering. So area has skyrocketed, but prices are coming down is what I assume. But I am waiting a bit longer. Should I wait until later in 2023? You should, you should buy when it's right for you. When you find the right property, you're comfortable with the payment and you know, there's no, no right or wrong answer to this unless you're stretching yourself, unless you're not comfortable with the payment, unless you're buying a house that you don't really like because you just want to buy something, right? Here's the thing. You buy a house today and prices go down a little bit in that market in two months, you're going to wish you had waited, right? You buy that house today, prices go up in two months, you're going to wish you had purchased. It's You just need to have that longer term time horizon and not worry about tomorrow. And that seems crazy. I'm saying don't worry about tomorrow. But in all reality, you got to have a place to live. You know, what's the alternative? You continue to rent or you continue to save money to put yourself in a better position, whatever the answer is, you got to do what's right for you. So, I mean, it's, it's difficult for Josh and I to come and, and answer that. Um, but I think owning real estate is important for people. It's important for long-term generational wealth. doesn't mean you need to do it today, but it's definitely something that you should consider doing. So when you find the right property, pull the trigger. Jeb, you just yep. you just answered uh, another question here. Okay. When when's a good time to buy? That was a version of it. He's saying, "Hey, is now a good time for me to buy? Is waiting a good time for me to buy? When is a good time to buy?" We've talked about this probably a hundred times on the show. A good time to buy is when it's right for you in your life. You've reached a position of financial and personal stability, whether that's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's a location. Um, financially, you have income, you have reserves, you have good credit, so you qualify for a good loan. And then, as Jeb said, that you're positioned to be in an area for five to seven years. When all those criteria are met, it is a good time to buy. You will not suffer if you have a long view and you look at home ownership as an important part of both your life, your lifestyle, and your finances. So there's not really a right answer to that. You have to go through and answer all of those questions. And sort of a flip side to it is when is it not a good time to buy? It's not a good time to buy if you're in an uncertain relationship with a significant other. It's not a good time to buy if you're going to be changing Hold on. So if careers. I just met somebody on 10... Hey, 
I hook somebody up tonight here. It's not a good time to buy. Dude, this is my They need to go out on a couple dates. They need to go out on a couple dates in the my dating in the site. You're hurting for, it before it ever gets started. No, you just they have to they have to be in a stable, committed relationship as part of our dating site. No, we decide that, Josh. We decide okay. if they're stable. It's an arranged marriage. I got yes. you. Yes. But seriously though, uh, when's it not a good time to buy? Uh, you're not clear in a relationship. You're not clear in terms of, are we going to be having more children, first children? Do we need more space? Are we going to be changing jobs, going back to school? Any number of those things can mean it's not a good time to buy and it would make more sense to wait. But those are the things you need to debate and go through in your head. There you go. No, uh, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, let's see. This is kind of an easy one. Anthony says, any updates on the B of A loans for uh, homes in Hispanic and black communities. No, we don't really get any information on that. I mean, because it's a Bank of America program, it's all done through them. Uh, but here's what I will say. This is going to sound really bad. Uh, but Bank of America, in my opinion, like this sort of thing is more of a marketing ploy than it is anything that's really going to help in those communities. Well, is there some help? Yes, yeah, sure. But based on the number of, of, of transactions they were trying to do and the stipulations and the guidelines they put on that, it cancels so many people out. Um, and it's it's more of a headline than anything else. Um, so I would say if you're trying to buy a house, I wouldn't get caught up in using that program per se. Uh, but, you know, have that conversation with the lender, figure out where you need to be, what you need to work on. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to use it. But maybe there's a different uh, alternative that, you know, helps you become a home buyer quicker, easier, um, you know, by, by going a different route. That's what I would say. Fuwa. Fuwa? Can I get Fuwa. your advice on my game plan? I currently live abroad, work as a teacher, saving 85% of my income. Congrats to you. I am thinking of coming back to 2023 to buy a home in Northern Virginia. Sure. Sounds like a good game plan to me. Assuming all of the things we talked about two minutes ago with regards to buying a home are, are the same for you, right? You have a longer term time horizon, money in the bank, comfortable with the payment. You find the right house. Great. If not, just keep saving your money until the right house presents itself. Uh, Dina sold uh, her house in the summer, been living with her parents. Will a lender ask for recent bills if no longer have any? So, uh, do you ever ask for bills, Josh? No, no, yeah. you don't. So they're going to look at your credit report. And we do occasionally see credit reports that have nothing there. The only place you can get yourself into trouble is if you're not using credit at all for an extended period and there's nothing for the model to score. Uh, we've talked about this before. It is important to have a credit score. So put a cell phone or something to a credit card, pay the balance off every month. Just keep using a, a couple of cards. Uh, you know, we go back, we talked about credit extensively on the podcast a, a little while back, and it is important to have to, to not pay off your credit cards. People think in terms of maximizing their credit score, having zero debt is ideal, having uh, less than 10% on your revolving credit cards is ideal for showing the model that you're successfully using credit and not just disappearing because you couldn't handle a credit card. Good, good, good. Uh, there's a lot of appreciative people tonight. Sherry loves the answer. Anthony thinks us, appreciates the answer. Edgar thanks us for the answer. You guys are very gracious. Um, so thank you. Dean, Dean, thank you. Dina, Dina also good. Thank you. Don't leave Dina out. She's thanking you as well. I think it's the season The the, the holidays are in the air. It Everyone's just, feeling festive and thankful. I like it. 
You know, the, the, the music I started the show with was some version of Silent Night with a beat, you know, just I thought it was appropriate, you know. I was going to go a little bit slower tempo, but that had a little bit more to it. But anyhow, um, Edson says, is there a max cap on seller concessions for a conventional loan? So, Josh, maybe explain what a seller concession is when you answer that. The seller concession is is any credit that they are giving you at closing. Are they paying points? Are they giving you money for a buy down? Um, anything that shows up on your settlement statement as a credit to you as a buyer. And here is the super simple answer. Um, if you're putting less than 10% down, 3% on a conventional loan is the maximum. If you're putting up to 25, 10% to 25% down, they can contribute 6% of the sale price. And a situation I've never in 26 years seen, 25% or more down, they can give you up to 9% uh, in interest party uh, contributions. The, the caveat there is remember an investment property, no matter how much you're putting down, the most you can get from the seller is 2%. And let's talk about VA while we're talking about seller concessions. One of the cool things about VA and, and seller concessions, Josh. So it, the interesting thing is VA has a 4% limit on interested party contributions, but there are a number of things that are not counted in that. So you can do multiple things there. And if you have excess concessions, most times your closing costs aren't 4%. Say the seller gives you 4%, your closing costs are, and prepaids are 2.5%. You go, hey, what are we going to do with this extra three or $4,000? What you're hinting at, Jeb, you recently learned that you can use that to pay off debt. Um, even if you don't need it to qualify, you it's a, it's a valid concession through the transaction. And if you want to, you put in your credit card bill to escrow and they pay it using that seller concession. So it's important that you are working. If you're looking, if you're a veteran, you're looking at getting a VA loan. There are a lot of nuances and quirks and really cool things. It's literally the most flexible loan program that we have with some of the coolest things you can do to help veterans. So you want to make sure that you're working with someone that knows how to take advantage of all those uh, flexibilities. All right. Angelina is asking, are realtors having conversations with sellers about how to price their homes in the current market? I see homes in Delaware still listing and selling above what it's worth. So sure. Yeah. I mean, we should be right. I mean, as, us as agents, that's our number one job is to tell people how to price their homes or help them understand what the value of their home is, but understand there's a combination of things. One, a changing market. Uh, two, sellers that uh, believe their home is worth more. Sellers believe that they know more than their agent in some cases. Some cases, agents that don't understand the market they're in or how to price things or how to look at comps or what have you. So a lot of things going on and changing markets. It's It, it can be uh, fairly difficult in some cases to price a home correctly in an appreciating market and in a depreciating market just because of, of the way things are changing and how quickly they change. And you know, all of that stuff, seasonality, all of that plays a part in it. So what I would, what I would stress is, you know, don't get caught up in so much of what they think the home is worth, figure out what you and your agent think it's worth based on comps, and then present your offer based on that and help them try to make sense of it. Now, is that always going to work? Of course not, but that's, that's where you should think about it. Um, but yes, in, in, in all reality, agents, should be having that that conversation. Real estate agents. Jeb, yep. I might I might be nitpicking here, but this yep. um these these questions or the way these things are phrased always trigger me. Yep. I see homes listing and selling, mm -hmm. so oh, yes. selling yes. above what they're worth. You are a bystander sitting on the sidelines, not a party to the transaction. 
A seller put a sign in the yard, said, I will take this much for my home. A buyer with money, a down payment and a loan said, I will pay that. An appraiser appraised it and a lender lent the money, but you're on the sideline saying it's not worth that. Just remember worth and value of the property is what a buyer and seller in an open and free market agree to. So if it's selling, it's not priced above what it's worth. It's priced at what it is worth because two people in an open market agreed to it. And again, it was confirmed by the appraiser and the lender. The appraiser is not the arbiter of what uh, the home's value is either. It truly is what two um, people that are not under duress in an open market with all available information will agree to. Well said. Uh, Julie has a, a, a question that we don't really get very often, but it's a good question. It says, do most custom home builders only build homes, houses over 2,000 square feet? Uh, let's see. They market these massive homes while I'm only wanting a three, two, possibly one level home. So understand this, uh, Julie, is that take a market like Southern California, for example. Uh, the cost to break ground in the state of California is about $90,000, give or take a little bit with, with, uh, applying for permits, zoning, all of this crazy stuff, right? It's very expensive to break ground. So when a builder builds, uh, a house or houses in most cases, right? Little infill development, or maybe they build a bigger community. They're trying to maximize profit. How do you maximize profit? Well, you make smaller lots for one and in theory, you make either smaller houses that go higher up to three-story houses, which we have a lot of here in Southern California now, um, in order to maximize that profit. What you don't do is build smaller homes on bigger lots because you're taking more of the available land and you're you're not able to maximize that price per square foot by building a smaller home. So builders are in the business of making money. And while single level homes are very much in, in uh, very desirable and, and in high demand in a lot of markets, builders are trying to maximize that profit. So the idea of getting these smaller homes, you know, under 2000 square feet is, is still considered a smaller home. You're just not going to see a lot of them, especially in a market, say, like Southern California, where the cost to build is expensive, where the land is expensive where you're likely to see it is in, you know, one of these markets where things are less expensive to build, maybe like the Sun Belt, some of these areas where you have more of a um, aging population, if you will, because th that's more of what an aging population is looking for. Now, I'm not crapping on you for wanting that because a lot of people want it, but typically smaller three, two single level homes are, are boomers that want those types of properties, right? And, you know, Huntington has a lot of them, but they were built in the 60s and 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 early 70s. And a lot of them have been transformed and added onto because people need more square foot these days. So um, you're not going to see a lot of them out there. In fact, there's a chart. I'll try to find it here while Josh is on the phone to show what builders are building price point wise, uh, because it, it's, you know, it, it gives you a really good indication of where builders are focusing um you know, their, their time, energy, and effort. Um, and, 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 and it's, it's in the higher price points because they make more money in those price points. So Josh, I'll let you answer a question here. I'm going to try to find this thing. 
Oh, we have a good one here. So Tyler says, uh, would you recommend a HELOC for anything other than using it for investing? For example, what about renovations on a home I'm not selling? I would say almost the opposite. The last thing I would want to use it for is an investment. Um, just depends on what your comfort level is with your knowledge and certainty. Um, a lot of people think in, in terms of investing, put it in context. I had a client last year took $300,000 out of his house in February to buy crypto. Um, I have not had the nerve to circle back with him to see how that <laughs> how that has gone. So he, uh, if he did what he told me he was going to do, eighty percent of that money is gone. So two hundred forty thousand dollars of home equity is evaporated, and he is making that increased monthly payment. So um, be very careful in terms of investing. Now investing in the home. Um, improving it, bringing it up uh, to a higher value. Now, remember, you don't get dollar for dollar off of improvements in the big things. Kitchens, baths are gonna have the biggest return, um, but it's a more of a guaranteed return than some of the other things. So I have no problem using a HELOC. So you're saying I'm not selling, probably have a really low interest rate locked in. So if you're borrowing a small amount on that HELOC relative to the size of your first mortgage at a really low fixed interest rate, it can be, the best or the only way to, to finance those home improvements other than paying for them out of pocket. Did you find it, Jeb? I did. I'm going to pull it up right now. Let's see what we got here. Oh, maybe not. I don't know where I saved it. All right. I'm going to answer another one. But right. It's not a long one, so you better hurry. No, I got it. Go ahead. Laker J says, hey, gentlemen, question, how accurate is the Credit Karma estimated home equity tool? A um, couple things. Any of the home equity tools are estimating what your current loan balance is, which they don't know your interest rate unless you have an adjustable rate mortgage. So they have to say, what was the going rate at that time, which you could have a higher or lower rate, and assuming that you did not make any additional principal payments over the life of that loan. Then they also have the, the requirement of they have to estimate what the home is worth. All of those algorithms are good, but they have margins for error and how homogenous your neighborhood and homes in your area are will dictate how accurate it is. So is it accurate? I mean, it shouldn't be horrific, but it's probably not super tremendously accurate either. Good stuff. All right. So this is the chart that I was actually talking about here. So this shows new home sales by price. And if you look on this side, this is the percent of sales in that price point. So you can see homes that are under 300,000 are here in the red, less than 10% of those homes um, it, are what builders are actually building, but you can see here as you kind of go up, uh, the homes between 300 and 400,000 make up about what 20% or so of the market, four to 500,000, about 10%, 20%. What is that number? 20%. And then as you go up here, five to 700 or five to 750 makes up again about what? from almost 85%, so about 25% of the market. And then you can see there above 750 is about another 10%. So anywhere between five and 750,000 above makes up 35% of the market of, of where builders are kind of focusing their attention. It's, I mean, they're there to make money. That's that's why. Um, and that's Jeb, why you're seeing bigger homes being built. Yeah. I would also, I, I push back a little bit on that. It, it's 100% true. Builders are in it for profit maximization. How, if it means, if they could make the most money building 1,300 square foot, three bedroom, two bath, entry level homes, that's what that's they what would they do. do. Yeah. 
but it isn't. But if you if you go back to that chart, we don't need to. But if you go back to that chart, if you invert that the line, the trend line of those those red, uh, and then you also do a median home price chart, that's almost identical. Because if you look, we had the most back in what is that 2010. So mm -hmm. when home prices were at their lowest, we had the most homes built under $300,000. And then we had a slow downtrend as home prices were slowly going up. And then in the pandemic, home prices skyrocket, and then they just drop off of a cliff. This is a function of home prices everywhere going up. So people put this chart up and say, see, builders don't want to build cheap homes anymore. And you go, no, because if we look at existing homes, existing homes are going to do the same thing because there's just not inventory in those price points in most areas any longer. It may be exacerbated because builders are trying to maximize their profits, but that chart, that line, that trend line will look no, exactly for sure. I mean, like what home prices have done. No, yeah, understood. Yeah, I mean, there's just less homes out there in that price point to start with. So yep. yeah, that no, makes sense. Uh, let's see, Tom, Tom doesn't have a question. Just joking on my beer here, says my five o'clock shadow. You know, I, I went to school with a guy that, that literally grew like a beard like this in like a week. I mean, he was like seventh grade. I still, I, every time I see him, I'm like, I still, still joke on him. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I got another question on assumable mortgages. Josh is something we, I need to do a, a video on assumable mortgages. <laughs> this is what I've determined. Uh, because there's a lot of and questions. Just, and just it, post and the people, link the five times a week when yeah, this question gets No, asked. but it, have either of you done mortgage assumptions for VA or FHA loans? It's an amazing option for both buyers and sellers when the locked in rate is low. Yes, it is an amazing option. Uh, but understand. It's an amazing idea. It is. Uh, but here's the big thing that people don't understand. For one, you, you, yeah, you're assuming the loan, right? Josh and I talk about this all the time. Josh, a lender, a normal lender can't do an assumption. You have to call the lender that is currently financing the loan for that for that homeowner, right? You have to deal with yep. their bank to see if you qualify. But let's say, for example, you have a home that's worth $500,000 and the owner on that property only owes $300,000. Well, when you go to assume that mortgage, you know, the bank is assuming, you know, $300,000 mortgage. That's what you're assuming and assuming you qualify. That's great. But there's a $200,000 disparity there between what the house is worth and the loan that you're getting on it, that you are going to have to pay that homeowner some way, right? So the homeowner's typically only going to allow you to assume their mortgage if they're still getting the price that they want on that property. They're not just going to give, walk away from that equity. Now, in some cases, they might be able to do seller financing or whatever. But when I, when most people, at least in my experience, you can tell me if I'm wrong, when most people are thinking assumable mortgages and assumption and taking over, they're thinking I'm coming in with very little to no money down and I'm going to take over somebody's mortgage and take over the super low rate and not really have to come in with anything. That only works if that person doesn't have any equity at all and they're willing to, to work with you in that in that way. I don't, most people aren't doing that. And and so I know there's a lot of talk on subject two and all of this stuff that's floating around the internet. Understand it's a, it is more of a headline grabber than it is anything that is truly function, you know, a functioning um, tool in this market. And the only reason it's being discussed whatsoever is because rates have gone up, right? As, as, as interest rates moderate, it's going to be less of a topic. Josh? 
Anything? No, uh, 100%. We, we talk about it all the time. And specifically, have we <clears throat> done them? No, we haven't done them because uh, as a mortgage lender, you would go directly to the lender that holds the loan if you were to do it. But what I will say in the answer to that question, Jeb, um, I have a huge network. I do a, a live every Tuesday with three to four lenders from around the country. I don't know. And, and that's VA specific, VA loans being assumable. I don't know of anyone who has been involved in one, been around one, actually being done. It's one of these fun topics for the internet to talk about. The loans are assumable. They very rarely, if ever, get assumed. Good, good. Uh, Edson, I've been able to get sellers to offer closing costs and permanent rate buy-down on new construction homes. Would you advise that offer or would negotiating a lower price always be the best approach? To each his own. I don't. I don't know that there's a surefire way that um, that works for everyone. I mean, what what are the benefits of of getting a seller to do closing costs and and the buy down? Less money out of your pocket, potentially lower rate equals lower monthly payment. Um, what's the benefits of of just getting the lower price? Well, I mean, chances are your rate's going to be higher unless you buy it down yourself. So you're, you're going to have a higher rate, but your property taxes are potentially lower based off that lower purchase price. Um, you know, if rates go lower and you're able to refinance in the future, you didn't really lose much by by not having that built in there and you, you have the lower price home. So I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer, but what I can say is that you know, doing this for as long as I have and, and Josh and I having this conversation and knowing the mindset of of people and, and how they operate, people live in the payment and not the price of things. As much as they want to tell you that they want the lower price, they care about the payment. And that is 100% accurate. And, I, and nobody, you can't argue it. And, and as much as people want to do it, it's, it's not a valid argument because I know how people live. Um, and so with that said, if you're one of those people that truly lives in the payment, then then take the buy down and understand the risk and, and the sunk cost that's involved. Um, if you're one of those people that on the other side think that rates will come down and you're comfortable with the payment as it stands and you think there's going to be an opportunity to take advantage of it, then maybe that's the right move for you. Well, Jeb, it ignores the fact that the builder is probably not going to give you the option of lowering the price. The reason why the builders are the most True. aggressive with rate buy-downs and closing costs is they are the ones that need to protect their sales. They don't want someone who bought six months from them coming and going, hey, a-holes, why are you selling these homes cheaper? They will do everything possible to protect that last sale. So assume that you go, no, this is nuts. I don't want all that free money. I want the home at the price that it should be, the net price, net of those concessions. If they have another buyer who says, oh, I'm cool, I'll take it with those concessions, they're going to sell it to that buyer. The only way they're going to give it to you at the lower price is if that is their last and only option for selling that home, because it is very important to them to protect the, the last sale price. Agreed. I, I didn't even think about that piece, but yeah, you're 100% right on that. Um, you know, on that same topic, topic suffering sucks says I was getting excited about sub two and pace Morby. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of the sub two guy, right? I mean, he is, you know, you watch his channel, you get excited and makes it sound super easy. And for some people it might be, and in some markets, it might be a little bit easier. I would just tell you it is I don't know him. I don't, I don't haven't done subject to, but he is making it sound way easier than it actually is. Um, and, and there's some discrepancies in what he said that I have, I personally have a problem with um, that I don't think are accurate, but again, I can't, I don't know that to be true. It's just my personal 
um, my personal feelings. So I know for a fact he is legit. He is personally doing subject subject to deals. Um, but just remember how many deals he gets in front of versus the normal person. Not only is he a buyer, a wholesaler, a buy and hold investor, he runs a coaching program and the coaching program brings him deals. Like if you've gone down the rabbit hole of signing up for any of his stuff, it's, Hey, partner with us. Hey, you don't know anything. You don't know how to make a deal work or, Hey, you've painted yourself into a corner. You have a property under contract. Call us. We'll fix it for you. Well, guess what? 99 times out of a hundred, there is no fix. But one out of 100, a sharp investor like Pace and his team can put a deal together that works. So if you watch his videos, he can give you video after video of real stories, transactions they closed on that are good deals. Oh, absolutely. The, the That's key not... to being a successful investor, Jeb, is deal flow. If you get in front of two deals a year, the odds of you getting a good deal are not great. When you're him and you're getting in front of 122 deals a month, you're going to have good and interesting deals. And those tools in your toolbox, an all-inclusive trustee, subject to all that stuff is, is good and awesome. And he's a smart dude and he understands how to use it. But it's um, it's a little disingenuous to think someone who's never been an investor and never bought a home is just going to step in and go, let me buy this $599 course and I'm going to go do subject to deals. No, and and and, and I believe all of that. I mean, the, the issue that I have... a. a, a or the thing that I have an issue about is some of the things with regards to, um, you do know, on sale insurance. Well, not even do on sale insurance is the idea that, Hey, listen, I'm, you're buying a new property and you need to sell your property. So you sell it to me subject to, and somehow the lender is just going to allow that debt, um, to just not be looked at when you go qualify for the new home. And it's like, I don't know any lender that's going to overlook the fact that you have a mortgage on your credit report, even if it's, been the deed has been assigned to me you are still responsible for that that money and most lenders are going to look at that and go we need proof that somebody else is making those payments and have made those payments for x period of time not to 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 take that debt into consideration and so when when i i hear those stories makes it sound like hey listen this is just you know an easy fix like it you know it's very common no it's not and maybe he's getting it done with some banks or whatever but he makes it sound to to the average person out there that doesn't understand anything like hey this is it's this easy so just understand when you're getting he's a professional at this most people doing it are not right they're watching a video getting hopeful and and trying to trying to accomplish the same thing uh brandon has a question my new construction house has been delayed for seven months i now need a car uh any suggestions on the situation or is my only option a cash car so josh what do you do with somebody in the position like this so unless your qualifications were pinned at the absolute max or the rise in interest rates over the last seven months has taken you and pinned your qualifications to the max, you would be able to buy some type of car. So you need to talk to your lender and say, what is my, my current debt to income ratio if I buy this car? Um, and it has a payment of $375 a month. What does that do to my debt to income ratio? And am I still good? Um, you know, if, if you're asking us, you, you probably have already asked your lender, but if you haven't, that's the question. Go out, shop for cars, do not buy one. Find out ballpark, what is my monthly payment going to look like? Call your lender and go through it. Or call your lender before you go shopping for cars and say, hey, what's the most I can handle on a payment? Now be careful, you walk onto a car lot and you tell one of the sharks, I mean, 
salespeople that you need a new car and you can afford $382 and not a dollar more. They'll give Your you payments a payment's going to be $382. Uh, 122 month uh, loan on a, uh, on a cheap little car with a $382 a month payment. Yeah, no, exactly. So just, yeah, talk to your lender. I think that's the right advice. Zacharys, Zacharys, uh, if already pre-approved but have credit cards that are high payment and need to be paid off, is it better to save money for a down payment or pay the cards off first? Realtor and lender said to save. Josh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, Need a little bit more information because you say uh, already pre-qualified. Are there problems with the pre-qualification? Is it too low and you need to qualify for more to buy a home in your area that you'd be happy with? Um, It it sounds like there is an issue here because we're saying, should I save more or should I pay the debt off? Saving more, we've talked about this before, for every $1,000 more you put down on a home with current interest rates, it saves you about $6. So $10,000 would save you about $60. If you pay off $10,000 a credit card, it's going to save you $150 to $300 a month. So in terms of maximizing your qualifications, putting you in a better position, paying down the debt is going to have a much, much bigger difference. As realtor and lender said to save, save to put down or save to pay off the debt. Paying off the debt is going to make more sense. I would rather have someone put 3% down and pay off a bunch of debt than put 5% down and go into that deal with more debt, if that makes sense. Good, 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 good. Let's see what we have, Josh. Um, I'm going to put this up here because it's comment that I'm going to kind of throw something your way here, Josh. So uh, Edson just says, appreciate you answering my questions. Want to give everyone a heads up to check with their local credit union. They may have some great offers for first time homeowners. So uh, credit unions occasionally do have some some good programs. Um, they can be restrictive, having overlays on, on certain things uh, that make it more restrictive in some cases. But Josh actually has access to a credit union program um, that the credit union itself doesn't even have necessarily access to uh, that I think on you're not on the retail side. So Josh, um, how does someone like learn about these programs? What's the difference in that program versus say a bank? Why is that, you know, how does it help people? Yeah. Credit unions are a unique animal. The only way they're going to save you money is if they actually do make the loans and hold the loans. So it's going to be a big credit union. So if you're somewhere in a more rural area, a small area, and you have a small local credit union, funny thing is, Jeb, you know, Jeb and I are here in Huntington Beach. There's a Huntington Beach Employees Credit Union. There's one branch. They're in the basement over at City Hall. They do not make any loans. So a lot of credit unions hook up with a mortgage company and the mortgage company does the loans in the name of the credit union. Those deals are going to be worse, if anything, than you can get. But some of the really big credit unions can, they don't necessarily do, but they can have really good deals. So um, from that perspective, it's just calling calling on the phone and and talking to them and saying, what are the requirements? Like you said, Jeb, what are your overlays? What do you have above and beyond what Freddie and Fannie would require? Because most of them do, not all, but most of them do, but they'll do things outside of the box if they are a portfolio lender, making loans from depository funds at the credit union. So what are we going to say? What you already said, um, best of all worlds, get with a broker that has access to a credit union or two. We have two, three, we have three monster credit unions. Um, two are sort of niche. They do different unique stuff that other lenders don't do. And one of them is is more vanilla, but 
really good terms in that they loan their own money. So they make their guidelines. They're doing jumbo loans with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac guidelines at better terms than Fannie and Freddie and jumbo lenders are doing. So for us, unfortunately, we have to be in their footprint. They only lend in the eight Southern California counties. So if you're in one of those counties, we can offer it. The other two are more nationwide credit unions. All credit unions sort of have a criteria for what, uh, what it takes to be a member. Um, so the other two, we can get people approved nationwide. Uh, the, the biggest one, the one that we have the unique tool is more uh, just for Southern Californians. So it's definitely, it's a good option to pursue. But what you'll find is most credit unions don't have great terms, don't have anything out of the norm, but some of the bigger ones that make loans out of their depository funds absolutely do. Good, good. Uh, let's see. We have been on for one hour and 20 minutes. Would like to ask a favor if you found any value, if we've answered your question. Um, if you want to, you know, get a shirt that looks like Josh's for Christmas, put the thumbs up. Uh, if you want to hear one. If you want to hear the way Josh just just destroyed that water bottle right into the mic, hit the thumbs up. Um, no, we appreciate you being here. We appreciate the support. Uh, you know, and that's how the show gets more people seeing it, more people following it and uh, listening to it. So we appreciate you. All right. So that we've answered all the questions, Josh. We are here. We're done. We're done. The night's over, bro. That's it's it. the holiday season. Last week it was 75 minutes in, this week 81 minutes in. But uh, I'm happy that 178 people showed up and asked questions about housing during the holiday season. Well, let's let's at least get here to the half hour. We got we got 10 more minutes. Let's uh let's just keep let's keep, you know, going here. Let's uh what, what do you want to talk about, Josh? What do you where, want for Christmas, Josh? Where what do you I, want for Christmas? I have I have everything I want. I'm the luckiest man on earth. I've got a wonderful dog and a wonderful wife and a wonderful life. So I have nothing to complain about. Where are you and your lovely family going to be spending uh, Christmas? We are going to be here locally, uh, Huntington Beach, not going anywhere. Uh, we typically do it at our house on Christmas Eve. Uh, the in-laws will come over and we'll hang out. Uh, we do fondue. I am not a fan fondue of fondue. is not a Christmas <clears throat> meal. I'm not a fondue fan. I don't believe that I should... This is going to sound really bad. Um, I don't like to cook my own food while I'm trying to eat it. Um, well, fondue, and, you're not you're not cooking it. You're dipping it. It's already no. Cooked. This is, this is no, not we're cooking it. We're not shabu shabu. It's no, two this is different like shabu shabu. We have raw okay. meat. Fondue and shabu shabu are steak, two different things. Ribeye, and we fondue it and put it in sauces and all that stuff. So it's not, I guess, fondue. They call it fondue, but we're basically shabu type deal here and uh okay. so we're putting it in oil and frying our own meat so we're eating it one piece at a time i don't like that bro i like to eat when i eat when i want to eat i want to eat like that's where i'm at you know i don't like going to korean barbecue and uh japanese barbecues and having to pay to cook my own food either so i'm you know i'm one of those weird people i like the food i think it tastes good but but anyway i i digress so that's what we're doing and uh like you i have i don't i don't need a lot um pretty pretty happy with with uh with where i am uh kids are kids are healthy kids are happy um wife is wife is good um hopefully she's happy uh but what jeb and i mean to say is that whenever we see a trinket that we like um we find it irresistible to just buy so there's not a lot left at christmas time that that is sad to say, but that that is accurate. Um, I, I'm very difficult to shop for because what I want, I just buy it um, most of the time, and I don't really buy big things. So it's like you know, I get I get a new phone a year, that sort of thing. That's about it. 
anyway. I Jeff, we do have a we do have a question. All Darren right, Buttery says, "Oh, I he's back. own a home with an estimated Darren's value back. of one eighty five, and I owe one fifty two. So it's an eighty two percent loan to value. Mm-hmm. I have high interest credit card with a five k balance. There's a way to tap equity. A HELOC, a fixed second. Um, most most credit unions. Let's go back to credit unions. Credit unions are very good for home equity lines of credit and second mortgages. Most of them will allow you to go to ninety percent. Um, so five thousand is what two and a half, three percent on on that loan to value. So you're still going to be under ninety. That would absolutely be uh, an option for you. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm going to go the other direction and say just pay off the credit card. Like, just budget and and pay it off. It's five grand. Like, make some changes and make that happen. Versus the cost to to refinance. For a five thousand dollar loan, it, I, I mean, I don't even know what that cost is. It, I, I think it's in your best interest just to figure out how to uh, to make the five, you know, do, do a do a couple of jobs on the side, and make the five grand, and, and pay it off. Leave your leave your you leave your uh, equity and your home alone. I know that's easier said than probably done, but that's that's my thoughts. Josh. This one is going to be difficult for us to answer accurately, but we're going to give a broad and general answer that should get you in the ballpark. Veronica Thornton says, how do states like VA charge interest for their down payment assistance program? Do they get interest on your home even if you pay off the loan and don't plan to sell? So most down payment assistance programs through cities and states are government funded through bond financing. So they're below market interest rates and sometimes zero interest rates. So depending on the down payment assistance program, it may not accrue any interest. It may accrue interest at two and a half, three and a half percent, a very low rate with no payments required. So in California, we have the California Housing and Finance Authority. They have a zero interest program. And then they also have a second mortgage program that does have, I believe it's three and a half percent interest charge, but you don't make payments on either of those. So one, someday you're going to have to pay off that loan when you sell or refinance. The other one, you're going to pay off the loan plus interest when you sell or refinance. For us in California, that California Housing and Finance Authority program, they don't have an ownership interest in your home. They have a lien against your home and they'll get something back in the future. I know there are states where there's recapture and or equity participation. So you need to check the details on your program and you need to make sure that you're working with someone. If you're looking at any down payment assistance program, I think it's important that you talk to someone that does them regularly and does loans, standard loans, and is capable of honestly and truthfully walking you through what are the pros and cons of each? Because for most of these programs, there's no free money. It's not like, oh, that's a no-brainer. I'm going that route. You need someone who can honestly walk you through uh, the the good and the bad of both options. Good stuff. Uh, great answer. Um, I think we're just going to end it there, guys. Uh, you know, we will be net back next week. Um, I think Josh will be here. If not, I'll be here by myself. But we will be doing the last show of the year next Wednesday, five o'clock. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, didn't hear us earlier, this show will be on the Educated Home Buyer Live podcast on Friday morning. If you want to listen to it uh, audio, if you didn't hear the whole thing, you can always go back and watch it on here as well. Uh, this week on the episode, on the on the podcast, rather, we were talking about how to write an offer. We'll do the second part of that series next Tuesday, kind of guiding you through that process. It's more or less an all-encompassing um, guide, if you will, as to buying a home, where to start, next steps, so on and so forth. So we're taking you through that journey. So if you're planning to buy a home in 2023, make sure you check it out, share it with a friend. Uh, But either way, we appreciate the support. Appreciate you being here every week, showing up, answering or asking questions rather, um, allowing us to do what we feel we're good at. So um, I'm grateful for you. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, all of that good stuff. Josh, 
Merry Christmas and adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.